to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Patrick Ishmael, Lash Chappelle, and David Stokes from Show Me Institute. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, January 3rd. It is the opening day of the session. Legislators get back to work this afternoon. Um, Patrick, not a lot of action in the 2023 session. On today, the first day of the new session, how are you feeling? And more importantly, what are the things that you're going to be uh, watching on the first day kickoff day for the session. Yeah, so I'm I'm feeling kind of neutral about the legislative session. I mean, I, I guess I might be uh, on the optimistic side because I'm a eternal optimist, and with the legislature, you kind of have to be. Um, but uh, you know, there there hasn't been a whole lot of optimism in in other quarters when you look at what legislators are saying, what uh, folks on the inside are saying about what they expect will happen in Jefferson City in 2024. But uh, you know, certainly, I think that there are at least three or four different items that I I'm going to be looking for. One, of course, is hopefully to see uh, an expansion of the Most Scholars Program. Uh, certainly, when we talk about what our priorities are at the institute education is probably if not one uh, either one or two uh, and so uh, most scholars is a terrific uh, school choice program uh, it's a tax credit scholarship program run by the state uh, and there are improvements that can be made to it so it can be it can reach more kids uh, and so i think that's on the table i, th- I think that uh, uh, hopefully the passage of missouri parents bill of rights some see some uh, transparency in our schools and school districts when it comes to curricula with our show me curricula project we obviously saw that a a lot of schools and districts are trying to avoid that kind of transparency. So I think it's pretty common sense. Hopefully that will get across the finish line this year as well. And uh, something that David, I think, will will appreciate and, and he might talk about as well is um, I, there is a discussion now happening about whether to preempt cities from being able to require Section 8 uh, vouchers to be accepted by all landlords, uh, particularly at the local level. Kansas City certainly is debating it right now. There are some areas in St. Louis that have also been talking about or have implemented a, a program like that. So, uh, and hopefully that would be preempted at the state level. But, you know, whether you're talking about transparency, whether you're talking about good governance, whether you're talking about tax cuts, you know, you look at our blueprint and I think we would welcome all those things. We've got plenty of things that we would love to see happen. Uh, and I'm on the optimistic side of it, but I think that probably uh, among the priorities that might get the most attention are probably going to be education. Uh, and uh, I got my fingers crossed on that. Yeah, and you mentioned the Parents' Bill of Rights. You've talked about that for the last couple of sessions. Are you aware of any pre-filed versions of the uh, Bill of Rights this session? I am. There's one uh, version in the Senate uh, that uh, is a good start, but what it omits, unfortunately, is a a kind of statewide database uh, where parents can go online and just look up the curricula that uh, is being taught to their kids without having to ask for it from from their school or school district. And really, it's that asking process that is one of the biggest barriers to transparency, because when we made requests across the state, you know, we would have responses that would demand $200,000 to see these records or hundred and you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars from the Lee Summit School District, demanding uh, before we could see any of, any of this information. You know, kind of getting the runaround. And I think that we, if you omit that portion of the Missouri Parents Bill of Rights, I think that it just makes it more difficult to get the kind of transparency that you want. So rather than asking permission to see how your money is being spent on curricula, on what's being told to your kids, I think that it's much more important to have kind of 
preemptive transparency. And uh, and so I'm, I'm glad to see that there is a discussion already happening in the Senate about it, or at least pre-filed, at least one pre-filed bill that talks about it. Uh, but I would like to see that uh, uh, portion of it added back in. Having that statewide portal is really enormously important. And uh, if we can get it, this information into parents' hands without them having to ask for it, I think it's all for the better. And Elias, you focus on the budget. I think the state of the state is the 24th of January. That's an opportunity for the governor to outline some of his priorities and we will get uh, a better idea of what some of the budgetary priorities are. But between now and then, what else are you uh, keeping track of? Well, this is a really big budget year for the state. And I think um, thus far, we've already seen um, additional efforts from the legislature going into this year. So normally, the budget process on the legislative side starts um, after the governor's state of the state. Well, this year, it's a pretty important one. So the the House already started. They they started their um, committee hearings before the session, and part of the reason for that is because um, the federal money, the influx of you know COVID relief funds and other funds that have been coming in, are going to be starting to dry up this year, and uh, state tax revenues are down. So this is a really big year in that. Um, the state departments need to figure out, um, along with the governor and the legislature, you know, which of these temporary federal programs they want to continue uh, going forward, um, you know, where they're going to find areas to cut funds, and, you know, really what we're going to be looking at going forward with, um, you know, lower, lower revenues. And so um, getting, as we go into the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking a lot into um, basically the priorities that the governor is looking at along with the um, legislature in terms of where they're going to put money. I think there have been some mentions of childcare. There have been mentions of, you know, more education funding, stuff like that. But when there's less money to go around, uh, you know, those decisions become much more difficult. And so I'm, I'm hopeful they can come to something uh, good. But the next couple of weeks will kind of give us a lot more insight into where they're looking. So you said a lot of the COVID money is starting to dry up. Um, for the last couple of years when we've talked about the COVID money, We've talked about uh, that if it's going to be spent on items that they shouldn't be items that incur new sustained costs. Do you feel like that that guideline has been followed? I, I think in some ways it has, but the one area that I'm the most worried about is this issue of childcare and how typically childcare has been um, dealt with in Missouri, at least in terms of the uh, subsidized childcare. So the federal government gives states, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars per year for this um, program for low-income folks to um, get help with their child care. Where, well, during uh, COVID, the federal government really just increased the amount of money they were putting towards this. And, you know, part of that, you know, you can say, you know, makes sense in that, you know, people weren't allowed to work you know, or, you know, people weren't allowed to do different things. You needed different, um, you know, you needed different access to uh, child care or, you know, depending on the situation. Well, now what we're looking at is that that federal money is drying up and um, the state uh, department that's in charge of this now, DESE, is basically saying, OK, well, let's continue these uh, higher, let's continue this higher reimbursement rate, you know, this additional federal money. Let's continue that just forever. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons that I would worry about Missouri's government, you know, taking just a permanent, permanently larger role in. Um, in the childcare space, but 
I mean, even further than that is the issue of, you know, this is something that was mostly funded by the federal government. And now we're going to be turning it into something that is a federal program that Missouri's paying more for than the, than the feds are. And, you know, I, I just don't think continuing that thing going forward is a good idea. I think there's a lot of ideas out there for childcare, but if that's one of the first areas we're going to start and we will see if the governor, you know, approves of that in his state of the state, uh, I, I think that will be a horrible place to start. And lastly, before we bring in David, uh, what do we know about the additional federal money, you know, via the infrastructure bill and other legislation that was passed in the last calendar year? Is it the situation where as some of this COVID money dries up, there's actually a, another flood of federal money coming through? Uh, well, I think I think what we're going to see this year with at least the last, um, you know, the bills that have been passed recently is where we're going to be seeing kind of a decision of, you know, are we going to actually be able to do these things? Last year, there was the uh, welfare benefits cliff uh, bill that was passed that um, there's a pretty big decision this year of whether the state's going to um, pay for it or not, because once um, the legislature does pay for it, or if they do, you're talking about a hundred plus million dollar additional expenditure going forward. And so there's going to be similar situations uh, like that all across, all across the board. You're going to see that in, um, MoDOT, so transportation, uh, there's going to be some of the infrastructure funds there. And so I don't really know if the legislature is serious enough yet about, you know, kind of right sizing the government in terms of what the current tax rates are, what those revenues are, and what the services they're providing, and the level of transparency of, you know, the and accountability that should be required of that. And so I'm hoping that that's what the start of the earlier budget process is going to look at. But uh, we'll, we'll get a better idea in the next couple of weeks when we start seeing um, bills referred to committees, um, kind of you get a more crystallized view of what the priorities are. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I would say I agree with uh, Patrick. I'm maybe more optimistic than is warranted right now. But, uh, you know, we'll see. David, last year for the session for you, there was a clear public enemy number one. There was a top priority for you last year. Uh, is it the same this year or do you have a new one for us? Oh, I've got plenty of new ones. I've got plenty of plenty of new things to support and plenty of new things to, to post. But yes, I did see that the land bank bill was back, the, uh, the simply terrible idea to expand land banks and thereby expand municipal control over more property in Missouri uh, to any city or county in Missouri that wants one, essentially. Just an, an absolutely terrible idea, and defeating that will be a... Uh, Absolute priority of mine. Terum ripum vinci once more. Uh, but some real key things in this upcoming session for state laws that impact local issues. For all the, for all the legitimate concerns about property tax increases that people in Missouri uh, were walloped with in 2023, as we know, the, the state legislature last year, in an attempt to address it, did exactly the wrong thing, which was allow counties to, to freeze the property taxes for senior citizens, which is now rapidly proliferating, unfortunately, around our state. So hopefully there'll be some changes to address that. But in a real specific way, you know, there, there's one school district in the state that's exempt from any and all property tax rollback rules. That's the Kansas City 33 school district, which is one of the main ones in Kansas City. And, and removing that exemption uh, would invo will involve amending the Constitution, but I think that's an absolute must-do, and hopefully somebody will willing in the legislature will be able to 
put that on the ballot to really help out the property taxpayer, the taxpayers of the Kansas City 33 school district, which again is is one of the main ones in the city of Kansas City and Jackson County. Um, similarly, I, I think there's going to be some movement towards limiting. And I support this, limiting the ability of local taxing districts to benefit from both a voter-approved increase and property assessment increases in the same year, which is what happened in the Melville School District and certainly elsewhere as well in South St. Louis County, where voters approved an increase in April. Then the school district saw gigantic assessment increases in, in the summer and fall when they got their data, and they didn't roll their rate increases back at all to offset that. So they got two bites at the apple, much to the displeasure of many Melville taxpayers. So hopefully we can address that as well. On the, on the earnings tax front, one thing I am optimistic about is that this will finally be the year after a, an interim committee looking into earnings taxes in St. Louis and Kansas City to, to really disallow once and for all, although the courts I think will eventually do it anyway, to disallow legislatively the ability of St. Louis to impose the earnings tax on remote work, uh, which it's been doing improperly now for almost four years. And that absolutely needs to be addressed by the legislature to clarify that at a minimum you have to be working inside the city of St. Louis to pay the earnings tax. Uh, Patrick, another thing we're really focused on is, uh, as Patrick mentioned earlier, Kansas City is trying to pass this awful source of income rule requiring landlords to accept uh, housing vouchers, most prominently Section 8. Uh, that's a federal program. It's a voluntary program. And cities like Kansas City or St. Louis, which has it as well, along with a few suburbs in St. Louis, I mean, to require that landlords participate in, I think, is an absolute abuse of local government's power. And I would love to see the state legislature step in and, and limit that and say, like, like rent control, housing vouchers are not requirements are not allowed in the the state of Missouri. Finally, with some we're so much about at Show Me Institute reforming our tax credits and tax incentive and abusive tax subsidy system in Missouri. So I'd love to see more counties added to the county TIF commission list, which we've seen success in some counties being more disciplined when there's a county TIF commission where the people on it are responsive to all the taxing districts and all the voters, as opposed to city TIF commissions, which are sort of exist in and of themselves and don't have to pay attention to anybody else. So I'd love to see that improved. And then finally, I know some bills have been introduced to once again attempt to to uh, require public votes for the creation of community improvement districts and transportation development districts, as opposed to the sort of sham property owner signature ones that they're generally created by, uh, as well as some limits on the frequency that uh, tax votes, once defeated by voters, can be put again before voters. So we don't have what they're doing in Chesterfield and elsewhere, too, which is the voters shoot down a use tax. So Chesterfield puts the use tax on the very next year to try again and again and again. And I'm not even opposed to use taxes, but with these cities that are constantly putting them on there until voters do what the cities think they should, I think that's a, a terrible abuse of, of the voters' decisions and a terrible public policy. And what about the personal property tax? Well, I do, I do like to see the phase out of personal property taxes, not for the reasons commonly or sometimes sold. I don't view that as going to be a tax cut for anybody because I believe the law is clear 
that real property taxes would be able to be increased to offset the decline in personal property taxes. So I wouldn't sell that as a tax cut for people, although some people on the margins might pay a few more, some people on the margins might pay a little less, most people would be pretty neutral. I do support phasing out the personal property tax just because, you know, a general tenant of property taxes and good public policy is taxing things that's less that are less mobile. Uh, you're generally going to want to tax land and buildings and not cars and boats and livestock and things like that. So I support that phase out as well. Patrick, um, taking off your policy hat for a minute, putting on your pundit hat, um, it's an election year. In, uh, it's a presidential election year, but there's also a lot of uh, statewide elections in Missouri. How do you think about uh, election years impacting the work that's done in Jefferson City from not just a, a, a number of bills that are passed or heard, but also the how the legislators interact with each other. Last year, there was a lot of infighting. So what do you think about um, how the election year is going to impact that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, election years, generally speaking, bring up the real legislature on steroids. So if you were having dysfunction in the year before, you're probably going to have a ton of dysfunction now. And I think that there is certainly a sensibility in the Senate right now that it's almost as good to kill bills as it is to pass bills. And if it's bad legislation, that's great. If it's good legislation, that's not so great. And so I, I would expect that, you know, there may be one or two, you know, big ticket items that the, the Senate uh, is able to get through. I know there's going to be a, dis- a debate about uh, some some Medicaid uh, related issues. And so um, that may end up getting across the finish line. I know that there's been a lot of discussion about school choice uh, in, in between you know the last session and this session about expanding it. Uh, and and I love to hear that. But of course, you know, when you talk about the school choice issue, you, you see all these promises from legislators, you know, for the last 10, 15 years. And there's not necessarily a whole lot that gets done in that space. So, you know, from the, an optimism perspective, I, I certainly hope, given what's been said, that this is the year that we see a lot of advancement on the school choice front. Uh, and certainly that's one of the, one of the top priorities of the organization and, and uh, one of the top priorities I have for what I want to see this year. Um, but it, it really does, you know, depend on a lot of the individual personalities in both chambers. And we have some really strong personalities that are running for statewide office uh, that, uh, again, uh, you know, the the next best thing to passing one of their own priorities might be to kill someone else's priority. And that's destructive and that's sad and it's frustrating and it's dysfunctional. But that's kind of where the legislature is. So hopefully good stuff gets through. Uh, but um, I, I think as an election year, uh, the, the true legislature, I think, is going to pop its way through. And uh, the current legislature is unfortunately really dysfunctional. To, to that end, for the, for the really important stuff, you, you almost want it to be primarily carried, handled, and public, publicly dealt with by people, members of the legislature, who aren't running for other offices right now, or maybe just re-election to their own, to their own seat so that they don't have opponents within the legislature looking to uh, – disallow them from claiming credit for certain things. So you want you want things carried by people uh, just running for re-election to their own little place and and they can get all the credit in the world and and uh, nobody tries to nobody tries to sink them on that. Sure. Elias, um, what do you think about the impact on budgets in years like this? People on the campaign trail, whether it's running for, you know, a state senate seat or 
governor going around and telling people, yeah, we're going to, we're going to fix that bridge. We're going to build a new school. We're going to do this project. We're going to do that project. How do you think about the, uh, the way that money's talked about in years like this? Well, I think uh, what we see is a lot of times this is how we get um, some bad tax credits. Uh, we, we're going to see you know, the discussion during the budget times that it's a little different than the past few years because there's been more money than you know, I think the legislature even really knows what to do with. Well, this time there's going to be less money and uh, there's only so many places that there are you know, um, areas legislators can claim credit. Well, one area that they can claim credit for is if they pass a tax credit that no one's going to be paying for or seeing a benefit from for a few years. So it sounds better in theory right now. And so I'm worried, um, you know, going into this year that that's going to be something that we, um, or my focus is going to be on, you know, trying to uh, keep an eye on these things so we don't get any more of those. Because, you know, last year we discussed, you know, two tax credits, uh, the film tax credit and the entertainment industry uh, tax credit were passed you know, two horrible ideas this year. There's a new suite of, I mentioned before, of uh, childcare credits. There's, I mean, there's tax credits for everything. And so I'm hoping that in this budgetary year and the election, uh, with the election on the horizon, that we don't just turn to our, um, I guess, our old bad habits of just tax credits for everything. Oh boy, I cannot wait to go to the House Economic Development Committee this year where I was, uh, Got into a heated debate last year over film tax credits and our absurd entertainment tax credit because I, I was actually told at that by members clearly Georgia's film tax credit is working. That's why they're expanding it so much. They they wouldn't do it if it wasn't working. Obviously, I disagreed then, but cannot wait to share with them the the Georgia film tax credit audit that was just released by the Georgia auditor showing that it doesn't come anywhere near to paying for itself and is, in fact, just a brutal subsidy for the film industry. It doesn't grow anything in Georgia. It just subsidizes certain certain productions. Uh, cannot wait to share that with members of, of those committees. Not that I'm optimistic that they'll cancel our own absurd film tax credit, but it'll just be fun to fun to discuss with. There you go. It's worth a shot. Um, Patrick, uh, last few years, because of the pandemic, healthcare was really center stage. In your three items that you discussed, there wasn't any healthcare items in there. What, what do you think about whether it's scope of practice or certificate of need? Uh, are you optimistic this year that there'll be some movement in healthcare? That's a great question. Um, you know, certificate of need is one of those issues that often comes up, um, but uh, it, it doesn't necessarily make it that far out of committee. Uh, last year, there was a, a bill that, you know, kind of was tinkering along the edges of CON. Uh, it it had a great number on it, triple seven. Uh, you know, if you're a, if you're optimistic, you're like, oh, it's great, great, great number. Uh, and uh, it didn't get out of committee at all. So, certificate of need, I think it'll be it'll be discussed this year. I don't know if it's going to end up getting a, a floor vote uh, to repeal certificate of need. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with it, certificate of need basically is a system that requires healthcare providers, especially like hospitals, to ask for permission to open up new hospitals or to introduce new services. And so, removing that kind of system increases the supply of uh, available services for healthcare, which generally speaking brings down prices. That's why that's an, an important issue. I don't know that that's gonna necessarily move anywhere, unfortunately. Scope of practice, I think it has some opportunity for, for movement. Uh, we saw some scope of practice changes 
last year. I think some licensing reform uh, uh, issues may be on the table. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's one of those issues that, uh, you know, after Medicaid expansion ended up being passed, I think a lot of legislature legislators lost an appetite to really debate the subject very much anymore. And and the healthcare in general is, is controlled so much by the, the federal government that, you know, it, it's hard to convince, I think, some legislators that these are some important things that we can do as a state, like repealing certificate of need, and actually get them to put some political weight behind it. So, you know, I, I think that there are a few items, again, scope of practice reforms and some licensing reforms. I, I think that those have some potential to, to get some traction this year. Certificate of need, probably less so. Um, but I think, it, it un, unfortunately, in, in a dysfunctional legislature, it was already kind of taking a backseat to other items. And I think it's it's kind of, unfortunately, relative to other items, probably buried. But, you know, I, I'd be happy to be surprised because certainly Missourians need better health care and they need cheaper health care. Two interesting things about certificate of need. It's, it's always worth reminding people that there was a federal certificate of need law, and it was such a total failure. The federal government actually got rid of their certificate of need law. So, so how much does something have to fail for the federal government to get rid of it, yet we can't even do the same thing in Missouri, even though it's a total failure here as well? And the one also quirk of it in Missouri, when they, when they wrote it, it's, it's not the only thing that's based on, but one of the major things certificate of need is based on in Missouri is number of beds that the facility will have. And that's one of the reasons why we have so many urgent care facilities in Missouri, because some doctors figured, well, we can open facilities that have no beds, <laughs> and it's thereby much easier to get around certificate of need rules in Missouri. And can you imagine going through the pandemic in in our state without all the urgent care facilities that we had that had easy access to to uh, to vaccine shots, easy access to tests, easy access to all that stuff. Uh, thank thank goodness they, they didn't require more than a, thank goodness they probably accidentally allowed urgent care facilities to operate so freely in our state. Patrick, I want to start with you. What are you going to be keeping tabs on over the next week? Well, uh, keeping tabs on uh, what the legislature actually does in the first few days, uh, I'll be in San Antonio uh, at a Cato conference for healthcare. So, healthcare is still an important topic for us, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that what we're seeing in Missouri is what we're seeing across the country is just kind of a slowness to re-engage the issue after the, kind of the burst of activity with COVID in particular. Uh, so, uh, some healthcare items, uh, but otherwise monitoring the legislature and having my fingers crossed that they'll actually get something done this year. David? One thing I'm monitoring, it's, it's a lawsuit, so it's going to take a lot more than uh, a week or two, but the lawsuit between cities and counties over local marijuana taxes and whether counties can impose their local taxes on top of cities or whether they're only allowed to impose them in unincorporated areas and cities have it sort of alongside. It's, that, it's usually done on top of but the attempt with the constitutional changes passed by voters was to do it with the alongside of system. And it's just going to be interesting to see how that lawsuit, how that plays out. And the other thing, we're going to get – one thing I'm fascinated by going forward to the, this April elections, I'd love to see – I'm hopeful to see more tiny villages across our state, tiny cities, disincorporate uh, voluntarily. And we've got one on the ballot, the tiny village of Peaceful Village – a very peaceful place, I understand, in Jefferson County. Hopefully they'll vote to, to disincorporate down there, and hopefully we'll see a lot more of that around the state as well. And Elias. 
Uh, in the next couple of days, we'll be getting uh, the final uh, 2023 revenue report. So we'll be seeing, you know, kind of setting the stage for what the budget uh, should look like. And then, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, later this week, we'll be kind of following where uh, what bills are getting referred to what committees and what hearings we're going to be getting next week, because normally that's a pretty good look into what both the House and the Senate leadership think are priorities. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, chances or opportunities for um, testimony. All right. Yep. Certainly something that we'll be following closely here on the podcast. Uh, as always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Elias, David and Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you.